I was driving down the road Thursday, and I did not have a particular thought in my head, which is not uncommon. I would say for many of us. Um, and I heard the Lord very clearly speak to me and say, I'm going to wipe shame off of your face this year. <clears throat> and I was, a little, I was a little taken aback by it because I didn't really, that I knew of, I mean, in the moment I didn't really feel any sense of shame. And then I felt like what he was speaking, something I want to talk about a little bit today, is to us corporately, that he's going to wipe shame off of us. And we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, where shame comes from, what it is, what it is not, what the source of shame is, and the reality that there's never been a time ever that the Lord wants you to feel shame. Well, good. Sounds like a lot of us need to hear it. Shame is defined in the Webster's Dictionary this way. A painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt, shortcoming, or impropriety. Secondly, it's a condition of humiliating disgrace or disrepute. It's to feel guilt, regret, or embarrassment. It's dishonor or disgrace. And I'm going to read some of my notes and then we're going to read the Bible. Shame is the fruit of sin. It is the product of the fall and the motive behind Adam being afraid of his father's voice for the very first time. It is self-condemnation and the echoing pronunciation of guilt in the courtroom of your own mind and heart. It's like a scarlet letter hanging around your neck for the world to see. The natural response when we feel shame is to hide. We hide from God. We hide from reality. We hide from relationships. We hide from community. The source of every bit of that is shame, and the Father's never wanted us to feel shame. Let's read in Genesis chapter 3. I'm reading from the New American Standard, Tony. Everybody good back there? Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any of the from any tree of the garden. And the woman replied to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it from it or touch it or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? 
He said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. If you don't have it, ask Isaiah to get you the message that I preached three years ago. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. It's a pattern that is repeated every single day, every single year in this Western society by the minute. We're afraid because we see ourselves not necessarily physically naked, but without something. Not having some sort of a covering or any, any type of pretense and, and in, in ourselves we're not enough. So we hide. We hide from relationships. We hide from the presence of the Lord. We hide from the presence of people. And it's really the product of shame. The Lord wants to take that away. And he said, who told you you were naked? The implication was, I have never told you that. It, that's, that's powerful. I want to say that again. God asked Adam and Eve, who told you you were naked? And what the implication is, because I did not say that to you, and up until this moment, everything that you know about you came from me, and it's all good, and it's all true. Now you're telling me that you've heard you were naked. I didn't say that, so who told you? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said what every man says. The woman you gave me did it. Why did you clear your throat just then? Did you hear it? It was subtle. It was subtle. It was sweet. But I said that she went. <clears throat> if somebody else was preaching, it would have been an elbow in the rib. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What was the deception? Let's just pause for a minute. What was the deception from the serpent? This is not where I want to stay, but I just want to pause every minute. What was the deception? The, ser the serpent says these words, Hath God said. So what he's going to do is take something that God has said, he's going to twist it just a little bit and make you feel as though God is trying to withhold something good from you. It's the same pattern. The pattern's not changed. Did God really say that? The truth is, so, so the enemy tries to twist it to make whatever God said a lie. What if the Lord were to tell you you are completely and utterly beautiful, forgiven, righteous, holy, and redeemed? Is that too much for us to swallow? It's okay to dialogue back with me. Is that too much to swallow? If the Father pronounces you holy and He made you perfect and He made you after His likeness and in His image, well, are you that or are you not that? And if you are that, then taking on any other identity except the identity of being made in the nature and the image of God Himself is a false identity and that is, that is indeed what sin means anyways. So He challenges the reality. He makes you question your own identity and the moment we begin to question our identity, then we feel inadequate. And because we feel inadequate, we feel shame because instead of being God-centered and God-focused, we become me-centered and me-focused. And me alone is not enough because now I'm not seeing myself as covered with God. I'm seeing myself as completely uncovered. And because I'm uncovered, I must hide.
And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain will you bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then he said, then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is not you, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken." For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way, specifically, to the tree of life. I want to say, to guard the way to the tree of life. Not to guard from the tree of life, but guard the way to the tree of life. Indeed, it was more like a lighthouse and ultimately would be a, sig a, way, a signal, like a lighthouse to point us back to the tree of life. It was not a, an angel standing there with a sword to cut someone's head off that tried to get to the tree of life. It was a flaming sword that was going to keep the way. It is the flaming sword and he has kept the way. Jesus has taken us all the way back to the tree. We might get that far today. Jesus did not come to just eradicate sin, but also the effects of sin. You're really super quiet today. And the effect of sin is shame or sin consciousness. In fact, the kingdom of God is a kingdom where we remain God conscious. If we focus on Him, if our eyes are fixed on Him, then we won't see failure and mistake. When we behold Him, we are no longer beholden to sin. This is big. This is big because all of us have our own inner uh, check, check, checks and balances system. Our own inner chalkboard where we mark, I did good and I did bad. And we judge ourselves based on what we did. Now, please just, let me just, let them preface everything else I'm going to say with this. D please don't take anything that I say, meaning you can just go live and, and do bad stuff, and this is not an excuse for you to get to go do the bad stuff. So, if you're thinking that way, it just shows your immaturity and not mine. I'm not giving people a license to sin. What I want to do is give you freedom to understand that you are not defined by what you do. Not a human doing, you're a human being. And God cares more about, more about who you are than what you do. What you do should follow who you are, not the other way around. 
When we behold him, we are no longer beholden to sin. You know this stuff. Even the woman caught in the very act of adultery, what does Jesus do? If you were to think of something, and all of us know people who have, who have been married and then maybe remarried or divorced, and it's an ugly, it's a sad thing, and I don't mean to, I'm not throwing stones at people that have been through that. It's a horrible, horrific experience for everybody involved. And, and they are still people, and God still loves them. And this woman is caught in the very act of adultery. She is with another woman's husband, and she's called, and the, and the leaders of the church bring her to stone her. It's amazing to me, in 2019, leaders of the church still want to stone people that are caught in sin instead of restore them. You can always tell a Pharisee from, a, from an actual follower of Christ because a follower of Christ is not picking up stones ready to throw. And if someone is, it's easy to judge their carrying spirit of Pharisee. You have friends that they're always just, you won't believe what she did. You won't believe what that, that's the, that's the voice of the accuser. You better cut that voice off. Because if you don't cut it off, what's going to happen is it's going to begin to speak to the woman inside of you. Because in every person is a spirit and a soul and a body. Let's just, let's just equate the spirit of man and woman to the man in, in the body. Does this make sense? And the soul, which is, which is in, the, in the Hebrew or, or the Greek, suke, is the woman. And so it's like a relationship. Spirit and soul is not the same. And yet, like God is three in one, you're also three in one. You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. This isn't, this isn't hard, heavy stuff. Does this, does this make sense? You are a spirit. You have a soul. You live in a body. So the woman's caught in the very act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus. They throw her down at Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus say? You know the story. What's his, what does he say? He kneels down. He says nothing. Which is to say he did not respond to these church leaders at all. The voice of condemnation. He kneels down and writes in the dirt. And I don't know what he read. The Bible doesn't say what he read or what he wrote. Who knows what he wrote? Maybe it's important and maybe it's not. Maybe one day he'll tell us. Maybe he did what they did over here this morning. Maybe he was just worshiping and doodling. I mean, who knows what he wrote? Kara laughed at me. I don't think yours are doodles. Yours are really nice. But Rachel was doodling. Just to be, oh, she's painting right now. He looks up at him and says, He among you who was without sin, you throw the first stone. And the Bible says, one by one, they begin to drop their stones and walk away ashamed. They came to shame the woman, and when they saw they're in the same position, did you know the Bible says that the law was given that we might all be found in sin? Did you know that? Did you not know that? Do you want me to read it for you? Do you believe me? So she broke the law, but they're also lawbreakers. They're accusers. They've partnered themselves with the enemy. So Jesus stoops back down again. He kneels down and writes in dirt again. And he looks up. And when he looks up, all the accusers are gone. He looks at the woman. And the woman who is mortified, she's probably more at his feet, who's just mortified. She's crying because she literally was facing, was facing a death sentence. They had the right by the law to take her outside the city gates, to take a bunch of stones and throw them until they, until they crushed her skull and crushed her body and she bled out and died. This was a part of their law. And so she knew this is not just, they're actually going to do this. And now she looks up and looks around and says, there's not one person left to accuse me. And Jesus says this, neither do I condemn you. 
What an unbelievable thing for him to say. If you listen to some preachers, the righteous of God say, well, by, well, you did it. You need to live in it. Because they're just like the God they worship. They're mean. They're vindictive. And they're not completely secure in their identity. The reason that people accuse other people, most of the time is they're either projecting or because they have a feeling of inadequacy in themselves. And, and so, I, I, let me just read it. And so what they do is they find someone else and they want to pick on that other person because they want to release what's inside of them and put it on someone else. If you don't think it is true, just, I want to read this. This is, from, this is from Psychology Today. Shame is a self-conscious emotion. It informs us of an eternal state of inadequacy, unworthiness, dishonor, regret, disconnection. Shame is a clear signal that our positive feelings towards ourselves and others have been interrupted. Another person or circumstance can trigger shame in us, but so can the failure to meet our own ideals or standards. Given that shame can lead us to feel as though our whole self-worth is flawed, bad, or subject to exclusion, it motivates us to hide or do something to save face. So it's no wonder that shame avoidance can lead to withdrawal and even addictions that attempt to mask its impact. Are you telling me addictions aren't problems? I'm telling you the problem is not what the man's drinking, but what is he trying to drown with what he's drinking? I'm telling you the men or the women that find themselves in, in a situation where they're in, and I'm not making excuses at all, I'm not what I'm doing, that's not what I'm doing, that find themselves like this adulterous woman, it's because they have a, a feeling of inadequacy and they're trying to fill that void with other things. The reality is they're trying to cover the shame that they feel deeply inside. She wasn't just crying because she was about to be stoned to death, she's crying because she's guilty of the charges they accused her of. And she knows that she lays at the feet of Jesus guilty. And she expects him probably to do what all the other church leaders she had ever met had done, to accuse her, to ridicule her, and ultimately put her to death. And so when she looks up, he probably had to reach down and grab her by the face to lift her face and look at her. I can see him. Bring me, bring me that tissue. I can see him. And since you're up here, just lay down right here. This will work. Face down. Face down. Turn over. Lord, help you with... I can see him face down. And Jesus to kneel down. To pick up her face. Probably took his own garment. To wipe her face. Where are those that condemn you? She looks up and says, I, say, I don't have anybody con to condemn me. And then he looked at her again, and he wiped it off again. Heavenly Father wiping shame off her face. And then he says this. I should say he does not say this. Now, don't you go do it again, you dirty, rotten scoundrel. And if they preach it that way, they're still not free themselves. And I pray for those men and women. What he said was, now go and sin no more. He literally said, I re-identify you as being one totally loved, totally forgiven, totally redeemed. Now you're free to not have to go back to that lifestyle. Now your focus can be, she's looking at, she's looking at the very face of the one who knelt down and breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life.
That same spirit, that same God, those same eyes are burning holes through her and she's looking at him and he doesn't want a thing from her. Shame off you. She's not, she has no reason to be, she has no reason to be shame. She's just, I'm just using Abby. You can go sit down now. She looked at me like, what did I do? Shame off you. The best thing that I can say to you this morning is prophetic. It's about your identity. And you better listen to it until you receive it inside. Shame off you. Well, you don't know what I did. You know what? It's not really any of my business. And I also don't care what you did. Because I know what Jesus did. The Bible says that Jesus came to seek and save not just those, but that which was lost. And the that which was lost was identity and perfect communion with Father. Jesus came to restore, not, not, just, not just that, but he, he came to restore the image. We were created in his image, and no one had a clue what God looked like. I mean, they got glimpses throughout the Old Testament. But the only perfect picture of God, according to Paul, he is the express image of his person, was Jesus Christ. And now we had a lens through which we could say, what, you mean he's forgiving, and he, and he wipes shame away, and he wants to redeem us, and he loves us, and dare I say it, we're just like him, and we're just as righteous as God himself you're not just yes you're not just righteous the Bible says now are you the righteousness of God in Christ and when we're in Christ now we're made righteous we're not judging ourselves based on our faults or our failures or our successes we're judging ourselves based on solely who he says we are then he says you are lovely you are my sons you are my daughters I loved you so much that I sent my first begotten son that I could have a family of many sons and daughters shame off you I'm trying to get that. See, that's, it's prophetic. Shame off. Get this shame. The shame off of me. If we have at the center of our understanding of God the unshaken belief in His goodness, sin would not be a problem. That's, I, know, I know that's a very heavy statement because I know there are many people that, that probably believe that God is good or at least they, in, in theory, but it's not a theory, it's a reality. And he's always good. That's his, he's always good. And when we, when we can really grasp that reality for ourselves that he's good, he's not out to get me, he's not doing this to me, he's, if anything that happens, he's doing it for me. Romans 8, you know, the, you know the scripture, for all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Well, let's just settle this. How many people love God? I want to tell you, you're called according to his purpose because his purpose was to establish the kingdom of God in the earth and you're here under the sound of my voice. You're a part of that kingdom. You're a part of the kingdom. Jesus even looked at the same, the, the same religious Pharisees and the same hypocrites and said, look boys, the kingdom of heaven's at hand. They had access. That amazes me because those are the ones you just want to. The only reason there was sin in the first place is because the enemy convinced Eve to believe that she had to do something to be someone. 
Remember, he said, God knows in the day that you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like God. She was already like God. She was literally created in his image after his likeness. Adam was too. He took the rib out of Adam. You know the whole story. She was in his image. What if I were to tell you every single one of you guys were born in the image of God? Every one of you were conceived, and he knew your name before you were conceived. That's why, to me, there is no debate on abortion. Should I go there? You said no? Did somebody say no? I put a thing on Facebook a couple of days ago, and I think people thought I just wanted to see, because I have friends from complete opposite ends of spectrum, politically and theologically and everything else. And I refuse to insulate myself from people that aren't just like me. If that's the case, I wouldn't have a whole lot of, you know, people. It's a very narrow-minded person that insulates themselves from anyone that doesn't think or act or do just like them. If you want to learn, if you want to grow, if you want to... It doesn't mean you agree with everything everybody else says. Obviously, you can't agree with opposing opinions, you know. But, right. So, Janice, to answer your Facebook question, I believe that from the moment of conception, even before conception, the Lord has already called these people. If I knew someone in here that had had abortion, you know what I would go? I would take a tissue and I'd go down and wipe their face and say, shame off you. Because you're just as loved as the baby that didn't make it. I know, I know. You, I, I mean, you were asking me, was there a reason behind the question? I wanted, to, I wanted there to be a dialogue. Because what hap- what's happened in our country now, you can't have dialogue about anything. If you have an opinion that opposes someone else's, you automatically become enemies. And I believe that some of the powers that be want that. They want that division. Because they thrive on it, they feed on it, and they profit from it. So I'm not going to get up and take a stand and say, if you've ever had an abortion, shame on you. You're going to hell. You're an evil, bloodthirsty murderer. Because you don't know what situation they may have gone through. You don't know what might have happened. It's not so easy as just to say, and look, I think abortion is horrible. I I think that anybody that comes to the place to believe that that's their only out is just as atrocious. Of course there are those that are bloodthirsty, and they do want to just serve babies up, and they wear proudly the abortion, but all of that is just hiding who they really are that they probably have not even been introduced to their real self. Well, what about in the instance of rape? Maybe we should take rape, make sure it's defined well. If a man takes advantage of a woman in a way that she does not want it, it's obvious. I'm not talking about a consensual relationship between an 18 and 17-year-old, but actual rape, that happens, then they don't get out in five years. I'm sorry. God loves them, but they don't, they, you, you go to prison for life for that stuff. You're done. You rape this woman, you're done. And maybe we take something from you so that you can't do that again. I mean, you know, call it what you want, but it's cruel and unusual when a woman gets raped or if a man were to be to get raped. So then we take rape off the table, which is only less than 1% of abortions anyways. We take rape and incest off the table and the rest of it. These are lives. And so you have one side that says it's always wrong. you got the other side that says if you're not defending the babies that are already alive, you're a hypocrite. Well, can you not be both? Why does it have to be either or? Don't throw stones at me. I hope you still love me. I can promise you there are things about me that if you find out the way that I think, you probably wouldn't like it. And that's okay. I'm fully secure in, my, in, in, in who I am. And it's okay if you have an opposing opinion. 
If some, I, I, it would not surprise me at all if someone here has gone through the horrible pain of having an abortion. And I'm sorry for that. And I love you. And I would take this tissue just as quickly as I would pick up that little infant and wipe it off and say, shame off you. What happens is you have what they would define as the religious right that become more like the Pharisees that say anytime you've done anything, they're just going to bash you and beat you and call you all kinds of names. No wonder the church, what is, where's, what, where's, where would Jesus be found in this debate? I did not know I was going to go here today. I mean, I really appreciate what you've gotten us into. Where would he be found in the debate? Would he be on the side of the uber-religious right that says, if you have an abortion, you're a horrible person. If you believe in it, you're a bad person. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter this. You're evil, and you're bad, and you're... No, that sounds more like the Pharisees. Would you say? Or on the opposite end, well, let's just, you know, you know I, just, I just like what I do, and, you know, because it's available to me, it should, it should always be legal. Well, it hasn't always been legal. I understand and I've read and I think and I ponder and I pray and say, Father, this, you know, this is not just, this, is, this may not be so black and white. For instance, I, it, we, you're not going to put, you know, Pandora's box is open. Abortion is a thing. Everyone knows what it is now. It's been known for, it's been known for many, many, many years now. But it wasn't practiced until, you know, what, 70, 80 years ago. Really, not, not, not by and large. But now it's out there. It's not like it's going back. So what do we do? Do we love those that have, that have had that and say we love you and there's a better way? Do we try to throw Bible verses out and say this is why you must believe the way that I believe? Do you, how many times did you ever see Jesus taking Bible verses and says this is what you better believe or else? He's not even like that. And people that, people that preach this, they're not like him. They might be wonderful preachers, you know, they're just, just they're misrepresenting him. He's, he's, he wants shame off all of us. Did you know that if, a, I believe in my heart that if a woman conceives a child, it, it feels completely secure in who she is and completely loved, honestly and completely loved, I don't think she could ever bring herself to have an abortion. I just don't. It doesn't, it doesn't even make sense. Jesus even said, greater, life, greater love has no man than this, that he man lays his life down for his friend, let alone a mother laying down her life for a baby. Psych, I mean, you know, it, it, common sense tells me if, if, a, if, a, if a mother wants to have a child or even found herself, Elizabeth and I found ourselves pregnant a couple of times where it wasn't planned. <laughs> I remember a couple of times, Isaac and David are 11 months apart. I would not suggest you do that. You know, it's funny because Isaac's a foot taller and he's dark hair, dark complected, tall and skinny, shaped like Gumby. And then here you got David, he's short and stocky and blonde hair. And their personalities could not be more opposite. And yet they came from the same father, the same mother, and they're, they're barely 11 months apart. And I can guarantee you we did not plan that, did we? As a matter of fact, if I remember completely, Elizabeth bawled her eyes out telling me about her being pregnant with David. But we weren't doing away with that child. Having six kids ain't easy either. If you don't have them, don't, you know, I don't suggest it. <laughs> There's two things that never go together. I've never seen a wealthy prophet. <laughs> I've never seen one. 
Do you either have like a really prophetic spirit and, a, and that, and, and you, just, you just sort of live? Or, or you're really wealthy and you, you have zero, zero of the prophetic. And I've never seen the two married. I'd love to see it. So I tell Abby, you know, one day when you get older, you need to marry a very, very wealthy prophet. I learned it from Kelly Varner. He told, he told Joy Beth, she, you can marry when you find a wealthy prophet. <laughs> Which is to say, you're never going to be married. Huh? Yeah, she's still not, right. You're not, no, not, no, not talking about Abby. She's talking about Joy Beth. <laughs> no, Abby's not married. <laughs> no, no. Shame off you. If you've had to make that, if you've had to make that decision, shame off you. God loves the venom-spitting, let's just kill all of them. Abortion should always be, even up to the, to the day it's born, which is just utterly ridiculous. Let's just not even have that conversation. That's ridiculous. That's just dumb. It's selfish, and it's really bad. And the child feels that. That's science. That's not religion. That's science. The child feels that. It's horrible. What else can we do as a church, I'm talking about True Vine, to make sure the people in our community know they're loved? I don't know if you know this. You probably don't. I don't know if it's, it's sometimes printed. Every year, we donate what we can to the Pregnancy Resource Center. My sister uh, works at the Pregnancy Resource Center. I know Miss Judy's been heavily involved with them. And that's exactly what they are. It's a Pregnancy Resource Center. It's the opposite pretty side of what Planned Parenthood is. Planned Parenthood wants to push an agenda. And the agenda is get rid of the baby at all costs. The person that came up with the idea of abortion did it because she wanted to do away with minorities, specifically African Americans. What a horrible thing. Because of the color of her skin. That to this day still bothers me. I, I just don't understand it. I had my little boy, Jewel's Bunton. <laughs> he texted me Thursday and said, uh, hey, fake dad, are you picking me up for practice? fake dad and I texted him back and said what is this fake dad business he said you know it means like my second dad like you're not my real dad but you're my dad and I said don't you ever call me fake dad again <laughs> I got another button here is Davey in here I mean he's not a button but I like calling him that he's in always oh, in children's church that's what the uh, that's what the original idea behind abortion was the spirit behind that is the same spirit that was behind the Herod that wanted to kill two years old and under, the same spirit that was in the Pharaoh that wanted to kill two years old and under. It's the same exact spirit. It's an ugly spirit. The spirit, we can talk about him. The spirit's ugly. And the spirit's murder. And the spirit is thirsty for blood. And the spirit doesn't want to see procreation because pro procreation is God's way of saying, I want this thing to continue. The spirit is unbelievably ugly, but people that have found themselves either because they've lived in a place where they've been indoctrinated to believe this is not just okay, this is good and right. And we're going to take our stones and throw them at these people as if they're beneath us. You can't, you're never going to win anybody that way. You just become a part of the argument. You've got, you've got the one side over here with their stones ready to throw it. This side over here has got their stones. And Jesus in the middle pleading, hey, can, can, you know, can't we all get along? I think he would look at all of them and say, shame off you. I think if a woman had, been, had just had an abortion and wanted to, 
In other words, she didn't feel like she had no other choice. She just, whatever. And was brought here and thrown down at Jesus' feet today. I think Jesus would go down. I think he would look at her. And I think he would take and wipe her face and say, shame off you. Would to God there would be a body of believers that would do the same thing for, for people. You know, that would utterly, utterly confound the enemy. What? What the religious right hates, and, and it is wrong, and they see it as wrong, but that they, and they love me anyways. Is that not what, is that in the gospel message, not that? That while we were sinners, while we were yet ungodly, Christ died for us. He didn't die for all of us to have it all figured out, and you know, we have our theology worked out, and we're all, he died for all of us. While we were yet in our state of sin, while we were still turned inward, while we were still selfish, while we were still naked, while we were still full of shame, he died for us. He took our shame so that we could, so he could take his hand from heaven and wipe our faces and say, shame off you. If my, how many, if, if you have sons or daughters, if my daughters come to me and find themselves in a very, very bad situation. Maybe they put themselves there. There's not a thing they could come and tell me that would make me say, you're disowned. Be away from me. Not a thing. I've even put myself, tried to almost, almost like psychologically put myself in a place to make myself believe this has happened. How would you respond? And my response would be, not, not what you did is not okay, but that's not my focus. My focus is you're my daughter. Don't you remember don't you remember every night, Abby, when I would tell you you're my little princess and you're full of God's glory and you were born for purpose, you were born on purpose, that angels knew you were coming and prophets heralded your coming. The same way the Father sings over you every night when you go to sleep and you don't know it, but He does, He rejoices over you. Did you know that? Did you know that while you sleep, the Lord sings over you? This is scripture. Sings over you. He delights in you. He just waits for somebody to tell you the truth that you're enough. You're whole. That you're complete. And whatever shame you have, shame off you. I know this is not profound. Probably not normal Sunday morning message stuff. When are we going to be like Jesus? We read the story and say, oh, that's what we would do too. No, you wouldn't. You'd call, you'd call her a whore. You'd call her a harlot. You'd, you'd, you'd restrict her from access to other people. You'd tell her she couldn't, she couldn't teach in your school, and you'd tell her she couldn't do this, and you'd call your friends and tell everybody that you could think of because you like to gossip. That's what, that's what most of us would do. You think you can identify with the story. Put yourself there. Did the woman caught in the door? She was caught in the very act. Literally dragged the woman out of the bed. What would you do? What are we going to do as a church when we're confronted with these things? When people that aren't, they don't, they don't think the way that we do, the, uh, theologically or philosophically or even politically, can you love people? If you don't agree with anything that they do, can you love them anyways? Jesus wasn't looking for her to agree with what he said or, 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 or 
some point of view. He just wanted her to know, hey, you're, you're completely forgiven. You're completely loved. And I'm going to free you from feeling like this is the lifestyle you're bound to. And he's waiting for sons and daughters to be manifested in the earth that will do the exact same thing to people that, that, that have found themselves feeling like they need to have an abortion or found themselves in adultery or found themselves in sin. If this place is not a place for people to come and get healed, I mean, is the only, is the only healing someone that has a physical ailment? What if, God brought, what if God brought five women next week and all of them came from an abortion clinic? Would you be able to love them? You would. Because I've seen some of your Facebook posts and it doesn't look like you've been loving too good. Sorry, I'm just going to be daddy just for a minute. It's, it's who I am. I have six kids. I can't help it. You're not loving. You're attacking. If you think I'm talking about you and you're scanning in your mind through your Facebook post, looks like a duck, walks like a duck. If you... If you haven't, then I'm not talking to you. That's okay. I don't want to bring condemnation. What I want to challenge you is, to can you love better? The whole purpose of my post was to get, I knew that I would have people on opposite ends of the spectrum, and they would begin to dialogue. And, if they, can, and they did. I thought it was beautiful. I didn't see anything hateful. Kara commented. Miss Judy commented. Janice, several of you did. You know, Neil Hopwood, several, several people did. Can you love like Jesus loves? Can you love people that do things that you absolutely hate? Am I going too long? This is a challenge. This is really challenging. But you think about it. This is challenging. Because we want people to think the way we think and want them to do what we do. And we, we want to pigeonhole everybody into our circle. You don't even know what they've gone through. When's the last time you sat down with somebody that had that and said, let me hear your story. No, really. When's the last time you, do you even know what their why is? Or are you just so, so outraged by their what that you won't even give them the time of day? And you call yourself Christian, which is to say Christ-like? That's not like Jesus. Sit down with them and say, tell me your story. Because what will happen is, what's going to happen is you're going to foster love. It, you can't, you, they can't help it. All of us are created with the, with the insatiable need to be loved. But once it starts, and they say, and then they, they may not say this, but you care about, you care about my situation. I know you hate this, and you care about me, and you're asking me about this. Tell me about your situation. Can you sit with them in that, in that uncomfortable, weird place? How uncomfortable could, would that have been for Jesus? I mean, yes, we know him as Jesus, but how uncomfortable is that? He, he, the church leaders are right in what they're saying. They're, but they're just wrong in motive because they're all found in the same, with the same sin. It wouldn't surprise. I mean, how did they know what house she was at? Ever wondered that one? You ever thought that maybe some of those guys wanted her stoned so she wouldn't tell her story about them? And Jesus is in the middle of all of it. And doesn't have a single ally. And neither does she. And Jesus says, well, since I don't have one, you don't have one, I'll be yours. It's incredible. It's an unbelievable moving story. He literally takes this woman who 45 minutes earlier had been doing things with a man she shouldn't be doing and says, I do not condemn you. I don't condemn you. 
Because he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And you can like it or you can not like it. If you're going to call yourself Christian and you're going to wear the cloak of being Christ-like, then you might want to start acting Christ-like. And being Christ-like is not being ugly and mean and vindictive and judgmental because someone does something that might be horrible in your eyes. But can you sit with them and say, so tell me your story. Tell me your story. Without saying, well, Jesus can forgive you in the, in the second or third. That's not what they want to hear. Oh, you heard a preacher say that? That's what we want to do. Let's walk the Romans road real quick. Come on, have a seat, baby. That's not, no, what they want to hear. Can you listen to their brokenness? Can you sit with them in brokenness? Can you, dare I say it, be broken with them? Most of the time, people that talk about this stuff, they don't want answers. They just care that somebody wants to listen. But what happens is they feel loved. You actually care about my story. I'm not suggesting that you, that, you, that, that you forfeit your principles or you forfeit your beliefs. What I'm saying is don't be so hard on your beliefs. that Je Look, I said this before. Jesus says this. If you come to the altar and bring a gift to the altar, which we do on a, on a weekly basis, hopefully you do it on a daily basis, and while you're at the altar, Lord, I just give you my gift of worship. Oh, I just praise you. Or for some of us, or whatever it is, Lord, I just, I just were. You know what the Lord says to that? Stop! I don't want that yet because there's something more important to me right now. What? We thought worship was the ultimate and worship was the, the premium and this was the premier thing that you wanted. And the Lord says, if you come to the altar and when you're at the altar, you remember that you have an offense with your brother or your brother has an offense with you, leave the gift there. Forget about the gift and go and make it right with your brother. He puts a premium on being you, having unity in his body above even our gifts of, of praise, prayer, and worship. And we're a worship church, and we're always going to be a worship church. We are True Vine Worship Center. For those of you that don't know this, that was actually not my idea. That was my father's idea. And he said, when this church becomes a worshiping church, we'll change the name. For those of you that have questions and think that I just wanted to change it, we are not True Vine Tabernacle, and we won't ever be True Vine Tabernacle. We are True Vine Worship Center. We are in the next place that God took us. We are a worship church. But Jesus says, and he says, look, the Father says, leave that gift there. Stop that and go make it right. Then come and I'll receive it. It would, be like, it would be like on Christmas Day, and I'm sitting in my chair, and my boys come to bring, they've been fighting all morning, fighting and punching and beating each other to death and fighting and punching, and they want to come say, Dad, here's your Christmas present. You know what I would say? Boys, I don't care about the present so much. Thank you, this is great. But Jacob, you just punched Isaac's eyeball out. <laughs> Isaac, you tripped Jacob, and he went down, tumbling down the stairs, and now he's got a line in the side of his head. <laughs> you're going to bring me a gift and you are just beating the blood snot out of your brother this is good thank you for this leave this here go get that right what I care more about is that we're all together here as a family in community than if you bring a bunch of gifts thanks for the gift the biggest gift you can give the father is community and unity with, with, with each other and if you're carrying offense and you think God is receiving your worship it's not worship 
If you walk around offended by everything, there's some reason the Lord is staying here. He's been here for a while because really where he wants to take us, we're not going as we have these little family issues. The family of Shruvah I'm talking about. If you're offended, you need to get beyond that because offense will choke out life in you. Literally will choke you to death. Because offense will become bitterness. Bitterness takes root, like Mark said. He prophesied it earlier. We don't have that root of it. And when it takes root, man, it is a hard, 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 hard one to kill. We've all been offended. Me too. I'm really not trying to go out on a long tangent. I just have already seen so much of what God wants to do through us. He's going to do it through us. He's going to do it. I mean, he's, he's already working incredibly in ways you see and some ways you don't. But what if we all went in, this, went in together? The funny thing about Joshua, I think I was talking with Mark about this. It might have been Marie, I don't remember this past week. Is Joshua did not go in and get his inheritance until they all went in together. Shame off you. Shame off you. As a matter of fact, I would even challenge you parents to even maybe just eradicate from your language saying to your child, shame on you. This lady right here counsels. How many years have you done this, Miss Linda? It's a huge deal. Because it becomes a, it, it literally, when, you, when parents say to you, shame on you, your children multiple times, it becomes, they take that as a part of their identity and they believe it. Children, don't, they don't have a choice but to believe. That's what they're created to do. They'll believe anything you tell them. Jacob, Jacob, I'll tell you this story and I'll let you go home. We're sitting at the table one night, and Jacob says, Dad, where's pepper come from? I said, well, look at it. He looked at it. I said, son, pepper is nothing more than burnt salt. No, 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 listen, I did. I said, I said, they take salt, they pour it in the frying pan until it turns black, and it's pepper. You put it in a pepper shaker. This kid believed it for two years and told all of his friends that were to deliver his camp that pepper was burnt salt. And you should have seen the faces. His friends were there just like, what? And so, so Jack get there that night, and Jacob's like, no, 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 that's how he walks up to me. Daddy. <laughs> yes, son. Really? I'm like, what? You literally let me believe all this time that pepper was burnt salt? <laughs> because kids believe what parents tell them. I like to joke with them, and there's a lot of other stuff I could tell. I'll save it for future services. Look, I, I was a PK too, and this is just what happens. You get picked on by dad. Picked on or snatched up and set down on the altar and threatened to death if you moved. That was, that was my experience. Becca, was it? <laughs> Did I deserve it? I was like, I, I, every time my dad called me up to run, I was like, God, please let my dad preach about mercy. <laughs> Convict his heart right now, God. Hit <laughs> the altar call, get him saved. Because otherwise, I'm going to hell when I get home. He's going to wear me out. <laughs> yeah, children believe what you tell them. Stop telling them shame on you. Sit down and talk to them. We learned when we were, Elizabeth and I were very young parents, and we had to go um, 
with Jacob to some, uh, for some psychiatric help, some of the stuff he had to go through as a young child. And I remember the lady sitting there, and she said, uh, Jacob, she was just observing, and Jacob was there, and we were saying, good boy, good boy. And she said, could I, could I say something? And we're like, yeah. She said, why don't you tell him what he's doing is good, and don't just compliment him as a good boy only when he does good, because then he's going to think he's only good if he's doing good. So from that moment on, we started to say something like, good job. If you say good boy, bad boy, whatever, that's, that's between you and God. But, you know, we were very young parents. I, you know, we didn't, have a, we didn't have the book on it. I'm like, that's so good. You know, this wasn't at church. This lady says, don't, don't say good boy. Or that, that, good boy, yeah, good boy. Or, now say it to the dogs. You can say it to dogs. God. You can't say it to my dogs because they have not been good boys lately. <laughs> they chewed the siding off the side of my house. Right. Who does that? <laughs> I literally did this. I walked to the back of the house. My one mastiff is here. We have a brick house, but the back of the siding. One mastiff is here, one mastiff here, and they both had their mouth on the siding. They pulled the first three rows off, and they're chewing it like crazy. And I literally, I, I, I went, are you kidding me? What dogs chew the siding off of a house? I just, it's just, it's, I like sometimes, I like, God, did you, your dogs have done this? Oh, you're, of course, it's the brother. And I look at him. I, I literally looked at him and said, you know, God, did you put this in their little pea brains to chew this? They're fed well. I mean, they're fed well. They eat all that they want to eat. They get all the leftovers. I mean, they, they, they chew up boots and tires and cars. Cars. <laughs> Who chews the side of a car? You know what I'm telling Bruno when I get home? Shame on you. No, I'm just kidding. Say it to your dog, don't say it to your kids. <laughs> no. <laughs> the Lord's going to make me go home and say, Bruno, shame off you. Just <laughs> anoint you with the spirit of gladness. You know? <laughs> what I'm going to pray is, God, take the stupid out of this animal. Because I love him, but I just want to kick him so bad. I don't kick my dogs. Yeah, no, sir. The devil is a lie. Dog's not sleeping in my bed. A dog weighs more than me. <laughs> Sleep in my bed. Shame off you. Shame off you. If you walked in here feeling shame, my prayer is when you leave, you can agree or disagree with some of my points that I brought out, but please agree with this, that you are completely and utterly loved. Jesus loves you. If you don't feel that way, then maybe, maybe it's a good door for you to open and say, Lord, I'd like for you to come in and, and live in my heart. And live, I'm for that and live in my life. But more than that, you know, he just wants you to see your, yourself the way that you really are. Completely and utterly loved. Made in His image. What if we lived in the freedom of just being who we were? Shame off you. Alright, let's pray. Let's all stand. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this message. This, thank You for speaking to me. I believe when You speak to me, it's for me and it's for our body at large. I don't know who walked in here, Lord, with shame, but I pray that you take it away, Lord. I pray that they see themselves new. I pray that they see themselves righteous and holy, Father. Lord, if they need me to sit here with them today, I'll do that. I say it over the microphone so they can hear, and I say it to you. You can judge my heart. If they need to sit here and talk, Lord, I'll sit here until the shame is gone. Lord, if we're going to have a burden, help us to have a burden to love the way you love. 
If we're going to preach anything, help us to preach your goodness. They can see your goodness and turn to your goodness. I know you're not, you're not just good. You have many facets, Lord, but you're always good. I thank you, Lord, for this time with our family this morning. I pray that you bless every, everyone here, Lord, those that weren't able to come, Lord, because of health concerns. I just speak to their homes, Lord, that you would, you would send a, a wave of healing across this body, Lord. That, 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 that even the flu, it has a name, so it has to bow to your name. Even the flu would have to bow to you, Lord, and that, and that your family would, would be made whole so we can come together and worship so that we can live, uh, live in peace. Thank you, Lord. I love you. In Jesus' name. And, Lord, we, we, we bind the spirit of Tom Brady right now in the name of Jesus.